thanks to all those of you who've been giving to the building fund uh, of late because we have some movement on this, right? This has been very helpful for us as we get ready to have our down payment for our financing. I've been asking you to pray for financing, and um, we need to keep praying for that. So we have some contractual obligations that we have to meet in order to keep the contract alive, and one of those is to get secure some financing from an institution or some plan uh, to actually buy the building. And so we have some things that we're working on like that, but continue to pray for God's uh, favor. Um, continue to pray that we would be good stewards, if we would be faithful before God no matter what's going on. So like if we're sitting there talking to a banker, Please pray that we remember the gospel in those moments <laughs> and not get really practical. Uh, Mike and I had a chance to sit with a, a, a banker who's a really nice guy and also a fellow believer and, uh, you know, kind of confess that we're not going to chase money around, right? That's not what we're called to do. We're called to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I know every church is called to do it, but so are we. And we don't want everyone to, like, like put that second to some other operation, including uh, getting a building, right? So that's one thing. Something else I feel compelled to say to you, though, as we've been walking through this is we have a leadership team at Family Bible Church, and our leadership team's job is to lead the church and shepherd the people. We think that those are roles of an elder biblically, and so we kind of function as an eldership um, group, uh, and so we try to do those two things, lead the church and shepherd God's people. And leading the church means nothing more than listening to what God is saying and discerning his will in a way, right? But one of the ways we do that is we listen to you you know, what you all think about things. It's not a, uh, you know, it's not to exclude anyone, right? So one of the things that came up through this process, and you may not know this about Family Bible Church, but um, some of the organizations we've been talking to are surprised we don't have voting, because uh, voting is such an assumption these days, especially in our political environment, right? But we don't have voting at Family Bible Church. But what we do try to do is move by consensus. We do not want to lord it over people or rule over them, but we want to wait and listen to both God and to one another about what God is doing. Let me unpack that for a minute. And this might strike some of you as a bit crazy. But we believe that if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, that God has entrusted you and planted in you the Holy Spirit, His Holy Spirit, to discern His will in all things. And that would include, especially, I think, things of the body of Christ, the people of God. And therefore, we want to hear from you as leadership team members. Um, if you're discerning things, we would like to know what those things are, right? So that's a feedback process for us that we will take very seriously when we hear from you, okay? So that's the kind of theology of what we believe is happening. But here's what I want to say to you. Um, and this is something that God has kind of revealed to me, right? It won't be some of us if this comes together. We've been saying it's going to be a God thing or nothing, right? I mean, it's going to be a God thing or nothing with this property, we believe it's a God thing. We believe he has intended purposes for it. But I'm also convinced that it won't be a few of us step out in faith and take great risk and do all these things on behalf of the people, but it's going to be God's people stepping out together to take great risk for the sake of the gospel, that we believe there's a mission and a ministry, uh, a vision for what God is doing at Family Bible Church that we need the space for. And it's been a long conversation about Family Bible Church. Do we need a space, right? We've been blessed to be in a space every week for like 13 years. But some of us are going, it'd be really nice to have a home that we could have 24-7. We're praying, if it's God's will, that this is it. And that this would begin, be the beginning of the next stage of our lives together as faithful followers of Jesus. So I'm just convinced of that. And so I want to encourage you, and I hope you feel like you're part of that journey. I hope you feel like it's not you, it's not everyone setting, one thing I really despise, and this isn't about family Bible, is this uh, laity clergy separation. I just think it's a false separation. I think we're believers in Jesus Christ, right? I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. Many of you are believers in Jesus Christ, right? And so um, we, we want to know what you're thinking about this space, right? If you're serving with us. If you're a leadership team member, would you stand up real quick? Us. If you have discernment about the building, if you have thoughts, if you have things that you think we ought to be doing, talk to any one of us, right? I'm included in this group. But approach us and say, you know, I've been thinking, or you know, I've, I discern this. And by the way, it's not like, do we like it or not, but like, are we, are we called to do this, right? Are we called to do this together? So I just want to ask um, if you would approach us. We would love the, the feedback, right? We need to know that we're all in it, and if we're all in it, we'll be able to move forward. So that's what I wanted to do. We're going to ask now that we pray together. 
that God would give us clarity on what he's doing here. By the way, just so you understand like what we're, what we're up against a little bit here is contractually, we have seven days now to secure financing contractually. We might have some grace with the sellers. They're pleased that we're taking the building. So, I mean, they're glad to get out from under it for themselves. Um, so I think we might have some opportunity there, but uh, please continue to pray for God's favor and God's discernment, God's will for us, those who are believing in his name here at Family Bible Church, right? Pray with me if you would. Uh, Father God, I thank you so much for the brothers and sisters gathered in this room today and all those who are not gathered but who, who are uh, dialed into what you are doing through Family Bible Church. We do not claim to be more special than other churches, but we claim to be a unique proclamation of your son and the salvation that comes in his name. We believe, Father, that you've called us to love each other and to serve each other well. And we have discerned, and you know this, Father, that, uh, that you were calling us into a more permanent space in this community, that we could serve more fully, that we could be more available with more opportunities for the community and for us to worship you together to grow in Christ-likeness. If this is your will, Father, would you just make that very clear to us? I pray for every person who is praying with me right now that you would give us a discernment in our heart if we're called to do this, that if this is an act of faith of your people to believe in you. And Father, would you help us to listen well as leaders? I do pray that we are not the kind that lords it over or that, that, that tries to push for our own way, but we would humbly listen and serve and listen to you and serve and, and love people as we move forward. Also, Father, lastly, help us to be great witnesses for your gospel, that we would never lose sight of the purpose to which you've called us in this life. We thank you so much for the salvation we have in Jesus' name that we do not deserve, and I pray that we would find ways to proclaim it even through such a mundane process as securing financing for a property. May you be glorified. May your name be made great among the nations and also in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. We're going to continue this morning then in our series. We've been in for a minute, and we're actually getting close to the end of it. Um, it's going to be fun to finish up the book of Acts. We've been looking at the book of Acts for several weeks now, for like a long time, and uh, we're coming to the end of the book. But we want to talk this morning about what it means to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and maybe who we're called to share the gospel with, Okay. Many times, and I, we're going to unpack that a little bit. If you're sitting there going, man, what's this about the gospel? And what's this about sharing our faith and stuff? Like, we're going to unpack that today, practically, because we have to, right, in the text. But I also want to um, share with you an observation that I've had about my own life. Maybe it's not true for you. But it's often easy for me to share the gospel with people that I feel like are down and out, you know? That I feel like are having a really hard time. They're struggling. They think nobody loves them and nobody cares about them in their life or they've been forgotten. And we're able to come in in those moments and, and proclaim the truth that God has not forgotten anyone. As a matter of fact, the scriptures say some amazing things like he knows how many hairs are on each of our heads. And you're a diverse group of people, so that's an interesting count. <laughs> to make, right? Like some of us have, you know, that God knows you. The, the Bible says that he knit you together in your mother's womb, that he's intimately involved in everything, that he knew all the days that you would have before one of them came to be. And that's an incredible claim that the scriptures make about our lives. There's no mystery. There's nothing lost in the Lord. And we get to go in and proclaim that to people. And this especially seems appropriate when they're like really struggling. God hasn't forgotten you. God loves you and I love you and we're here for you. God placed us in this moment for this very time together. But one thing I've noticed is it's often harder to witness to people who have it all, who have it all together. Maybe it's not like that for you. Maybe you have been gifted to preach the gospel to people who have absolute success. They have no need for anyone, uh, maybe let alone God. In my own experience, I've found that very hard. What do we bring? How do we proclaim a gospel whenever we aren't the most successful person in the room. Let me explain a little bit more about that, I think. We do foreign mission work, right? But it's easy to drop into a foreign mission context when you're a wealthy American, and you might say, Bill, you don't know me. I'm not wealthy. Guess what? Drop you into that context, and you are wealthy. <laughs> you have way more resources than any person living there. And yet, what about the opposite? What about a proclamation of the gospel where you're the the most oppressed person or the poorest person in the room or the least likely to succeed in your high school yearbook? How do you, how do you proclaim the gospel in that moment? Well, today we're going to find out a bit about that. 
Maybe let me ask you a really pointed question. It might bring up some bad, you know. If you were called into the president's office, called before him to stand there and explain your faith in Jesus Christ, how would you explain your faith to Donald Trump? Or more importantly, maybe, how would you invite him into faith? Or maybe you go, no problem. President Obama, former President Obama. Or maybe your least favorite president in history. <laughs> And so it's an interesting question to ask, those power dynamics. And today we're going we're gonna to hear a witness of the, the, the power of those dynamics, but the power of the gospel to move forward through them. So pray with me. We're going to pray that God would inspire us to understand his word as we always do. So please join me in prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for this opportunity to come to worship you and to give you praise and thanks because you are worthy of all praise from all nations and all peoples at all times. And we are one of them. So Father, today may we first surrender ourselves over to you we ask, Father, that you would um, continue to help us recognize the forgiveness of sins that we have in your name, that you have called us to new life and redemption. We pray, Father God, that if we're here this morning and not believing, that you would help us to believe, that you would, you would help in those areas of our lives where we still struggle to believe, that you would overcome us by your grace and your faith. Father, would you be our teacher today? We ask that your Holy Spirit would inspire our minds and our hearts to know and believe, and then our spirit to just act on our faith. Help us do this work for your glory, for our good, and the good of those around us who you've called us to serve. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to pick up where we left off. I've got to find my clicker, clicker. Oh, look, we're already ahead on slides. We're going to go back. I didn't put this in, actually. That is not correct. We're going to go to um, Acts chapter 25. By the way, this is going to be really close here. You should be pretty close to page 777. So look around there if you use one of our Bibles. Acts 25 is where we're going to start today. It's where we left off last week, and then we're going to uh, continue through the end of 26. You remember that Paul has been taken before the Sanhedrin and then pulled back into the Roman care um, and to be to be kept safe. Um, and he has now been two years. We'll pick up in 27, verse 24. Chapter 24, verse 27, real quick. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Pontius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favor to Jews, he left Paul in prison. So that's where we, we leave Paul last time. Two years in prison, witnessing to the leader, uh, Felix, there. Now, picking up in verse 1 of chapter 25. Three days after arriving in the province... Festus, that's the new ruler, right, uh, went up to Caesarea, uh, from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him, and they presented the charges they had against Paul. They urgently requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. You'll remember that's a bit of a replay of the ambush. They were going to kill him when he's on the way to the Sanhedrin when he was still in Jerusalem, but he was moved to Caesarea for protection. So now they're asking him to come back to, to Jerusalem so, so that he can be tried, but they're going to kill him on the way. Verse 4, Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of you and your leaders uh, come with me and press charges against the man there, if he has done anything wrong. After spending eight or ten days with them, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he convened the court in order, and ordered that Paul would be uh, brought before him. When Paul appeared, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing serious charges against him, which they could not prove. So this is like a repeat of what's been happening, right? But they're coming down, and they're going to try to prove again that Paul is guilty of something that's worthy of death. That's what they're saying, that he's done something that's worthy of death, but it's necessarily couldn't prove it. Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the law or the Jews or against the temple or the, against Caesar. I want to stop real quick here. This is one of our main points today. But I want to say again, that is very similar to what he was, he was uh, charged with in Ephesus about the false gods, right? Um, the same three things that he was being uh, against the people, against the place, the temple, and against the ultimate ruler, Right? And in that case, it was the goddess, but now it's Caesar. Because if there's, no, there's not a goddess thing, well, it's the authority, the authorities that you're against. And that's the accusation. And, and Paul says, I'm not against those things. I'm not against the Jews. I'm not against the temple. I'm not against Caesar. That's not who I am. 
Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before them on these charges? So he has an opportunity now to go back to Jerusalem. And Paul answered this way, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done anything wrong to the Jews, as you yourself well know. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving of death, I don't refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. That's a pretty dramatic moment, right? I'm going to read 12. We're going to talk about this. After Festus had conferred with his counsel, right? He, is this legally accurate? He said, you have appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar you will go. This is an interesting thing here about what Paul's doing. He knows his rights as a Roman citizen, right? And that's one angle you can take on the text. You can say, look, Paul knows he's very smart, and he's not going to be manipulated to go back to Jerusalem. But I want to remind you of something else that, that's maybe a more, um, I don't want to say, you know, a different understanding of this. Remember what Jesus said to Paul? Take courage, Paul. Just like you proclaimed me in Jerusalem, you will now proclaim me in Rome. And so we could see this as a very kind of humanistic response, like, oh, I'm going to save my own skin and I'm going to go to Caesar, right? And that could be a fair interpretation. But there's this other reality that Paul has been told by Jesus Christ, we're found today, it's a very important thing to Paul, that he will go to Rome. And so in this moment, he can go back to Jerusalem, where he's already kind of one with Sanhedrin and all stuff, or he can go on to face what Jesus had said you will ultimately do, which is to testify about me in Rome in the same way you testified about me in Jerusalem. And so whichever of those you, you believe, uh, Paul chooses that. You can say he chooses to believe what Jesus said is true. I should take courage because I'm going to Rome. So there's, a, there's a, those two things coming together. In verse 13, a few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. I, I want to stop just for a second and explain who this Agrippa dude is, right? Because it's important to understand this. And I, this is something I discovered when I was preparing to, to share with you. Um, Agrippa, it turns out, is the grandson of Herod the Great. Just in case you don't recall, Herod the Great was the one that found out that Jesus had been born, that the Messiah had been born, and sent people in to kill all the children under, I think it was three years of age, to make sure that this Messiah was stopped, right? And so King Herod was a vicious, wicked ruler, and this guy is his grandson. Now, that puts a generation between them. Well, who's, who's, the, who's the next guy after Herod? Well, the next guy was Agrippa I. And Agrippa I was actually the guy that killed James, brother of John. Remember John and James, the brothers of thunder? He killed James for his faith. And he's also the one that put Peter in prison in the book of Acts. And you remember God released Peter from prison miraculously from that confinement. And so he has this history of he, he's not coming from a great place in, in biblical context. <laughs> This isn't the lineage you want, but he comes from a place of great power, you see. If your grandfather was Herod the Great, people would be really afraid of you. And so he comes from this place. It's a very corrupt thing. By the way, there's a mention here, we won't get into this, but there's a mention here that um, he came with, with Bernice. We're going to talk about that in a minute. It's a little later, a little later. We're going to talk about that. But it says it here, he came with Agrippa and Bernice to arrive to Caesarea. Okay. And one more thing I want to make a note of here. These are little details, but Paul appeals to Caesar, and the place he is staying is Caesarea. And Caesarea is named in honor of Caesar, right? And at this point, it's a Roman province. It's a, it's a really popular um, uh, location for shipping. It's a hub of activity, and it's still there to this day. Caesarea is still there, right, in Israel. And so it's this kind of uh, really powerful place. But um, it's a place where he's, I just thought it was interesting, he's appealing to Caesar from the place where Caesar, he's been moved from Jerusalem to this place that's now been taken over by Rome in around 57 AD to, to uh, be used for their purposes. And so he kind of says, I'm standing before Caesar's court. This is where I should be. All right. Since, in verse 14 here again, since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king, King um, Agrippa. He said, there's a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and elders of the Jews brought charges against this man and asked that he be condemned. I told them that it is not Roman custom to hand over any man before he has faced his accusers and has had an opportunity to defend himself against their charges. 
That sounds kind of timely, actually, if you think about it. There's this right to due process that you have as a Roman citizen. Verse 17, when they came here with me, I did not delay in, uh, delay the case, but I convened the court the next day, and I ordered the man to be brought in. And when his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes that I expected of them. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus, who Paul claimed was alive. And I just want to pause here and say this becomes the pinnacle issue in the persecution of Paul and the early church, right? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. This becomes the issue. And I thought it was a really interesting thing. This is the only time I think this is mentioned like this. It says, the dispute was over a dead man named Jesus. So that means that the rulers and authorities know what the dispute's truly about. And you remember that Paul has now several times testified about the gospel of Jesus before a mob, right? And before rulers and authorities and, and the uh, commander, right? And then before now uh, Felix, and he's about to testify before uh, Agrippa. And so, it's, and he said, if, if I've done anything wrong, the only thing I've done wrong is believing in resurrection. And we're going to talk about that more today as well. And so that's the problem. This dead man named Jesus. So that's the accusation that's been brought up against him, and, and they're sorting it out. Now, what, what does this matter? There's a fundamental question that's being asked of Paul that Paul is believing in, and that the Jews are asking the um, King Agrippa to rule over, which is this, this issue of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. The fundamental question is this. Is Jesus dead or alive? Is he dead or alive? That's the fundamental question that's being asked here. And it's like, um, even today, I, I just want to, this is still the fundamental question of Christianity. As a matter of fact, it might even be the fundamental question of your faith today. Is Jesus alive or dead? Is he raised from the dead or not? Because that belief or lack of belief informs everything else that we do. Everything else in our lives comes, gets unpacked from that fundamental belief. Can Jesus do what he says he's, he can do? Is God who he says he is? And is Jesus truly alive? And that's what you see confessed here is that there's this guy named Paul who believes that Jesus is alive. But they, and we, you can hear it, this dead man Jesus, don't believe in resurrection. Verse 20. I was at a loss to investigate such matters. So he didn't know how to even check, how to even test this theory, right? So I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial over these charges. And when Paul made his appeal to be held over uh, for the emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar, right? Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. And so Festus replied, tomorrow you will hear him. Verse 22. The next day Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room of the high-ranking officers and the leading men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was then brought in. So here, here comes Agrippa and Bernice. And Bernice is the sister of Agrippa, and she traveled with him all the time, and there's a bit of scandal about that. But <coughs> you hear here that they come in not as ordinary people. You can just imagine the galleries full, all the muckety-mucks are there, and then with great pomp and circumstance, here comes King Agrippa to listen to the defense of this one called Paul. And then after everyone's in place and all the horns have been blown and everyone's authority has been acknowledged, then here comes we little Paul in to give testimony. Festus said, verse 24, King Agrippa and all who, have, who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and now here in Caesarea, shouting that he, did, he ought not to live any longer. I found that he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor... I decided to send him to Rome, but I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write about. For I think it is unreasonable to send on a prisoner without a specifying a charge against him. So he's in a real bind. He's like, I don't know. And you can imagine the fear he has of sending a prisoner to be ruled over by Caesar when he doesn't know what he's even charged with. So he says, King Agrippa, you're going to help me with this. You're going to help in this investigation. Then Agrippa, verse 20, chapter 26, verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission now to speak for yourself. 
table set. Everyone's ready to make a judgment. Everyone's listening. The mics are on, right? So Paul motions with his hand and began his defense. By the way, I'd love to know what those motions of his hands are because they're mentioned over and over again, you know? I don't know what it is. Is it like this? Like, calm down? Is it like this? <laughs> I don't know what it is. Is it like, I don't know what it is. That little details. Okay, but he motions with his hands to get their attention and he begins his defense. Verse 2. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. He mentions a few things here. Agrippa knows what's going on. He's had to deal with these Jewish problems before. And I want to point out that he says, you're familiar with all the controversies. Not that there's one controversy in Judaism, but there's multiple right? We're a mess as people. And we know you're familiar with all these controversies that have already come before you. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So he's going to really focus now on King Agrippa in this testimony, right? He said he's witnessed before, but here's his opportunity. The Jews all know the way I lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country, and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time, and they can testify, if they're willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. So I just want to stop there. And so he says, you know me. You've known me my whole life. I'm not a mystery to you, right? I've lived as a Pharisee. As a matter of fact, you may recall, from, I think it's uh, Acts 23, he says he was the son of a Pharisee. He was raised in a Pharisaical household. You kept the law in Paul's household growing up. And he had kept it his whole life. And so he kind of starts as the basis of his, of his testimony. You all know me. And if you were willing, he even says, you could testify that how I was the, one of the strictest keepers of the law. Verse 6, and this is where he says, but this is what it's about for Paul. He thinks he's on trial for two, three reasons, maybe. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I stand on trial today. The truth is that he's on, he's on uh, trial because of the hope of God's promises. That's the first way he lays it out. It's the hope of God's promises. And it was promised, by the way, to his an our ancestors. So it's not just to Paul, right? He's inclusive here. And it's the, the hope of what God has promised our fathers or our ancestors that I'm on trial today. That's why I'm on trial. But then he quickly follows up with the second thing. And by the way, I want to say, well, why mention that, right? Because this is rooted fundamentally in who Jesus Christ is. The hope of our fathers. See, he's not, he's not saying it's my. It's our. Ours. The hope of our fathers. His hope in, the, in our fathers, um, what was promised our fathers. And then verse uh, 7, this is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. So the second reason he said, I think this is next here, yeah, is, oh, the promise of resurrection. I got a little ahead of myself. That's all right. So he says, it's the promise that our fathers have labored for day and night worshiping God. See, he's saying that for Israel it was never complete, we never believed that ultimately the temple would bring righteousness. We never believed that ultimately all the sacrifices were going to make us holy. But we believed that God was going to ultimately do something that would make us holy forever. And Paul's going to make a case that that very thing has happened. And then the last thing, the third is, he makes it very clear that it's about resurrection. So it's, it's the promise of resurrection that Paul thinks is ultimately the most important thing. O king, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. And how do we know? Because verse 8, why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? You know, I uh, don't know if you think much about the word incredible, but it's an interesting word, right? Because we think of incredible as like, that's incredible. <laughs> you know, like, wow, that's really cool. And we believe it to be true. You ever seen a magician do a trick? And you're like, wow, that's incredible, right? But if you think about the, the actual word, it means not credible, that's got to be a trick. That can't be real. And Paul asked the question, why should any of you believe that the resurrection is incredible, is not believable, 
right? He makes some assumptions here. But why should you believe that, that, that God cannot raise men from the dead? That God does not raise the dead? And that becomes the fundamental issue. Why? Why? Because Paul is claiming that God raised Jesus from the dead first. That's why we have a cross up here. Because we believe he was a dead man that was raised to life. That he was in the tomb three days and he walked out, right? That he was resurrected in bodily form, by the way. We get in these controversies about, well, maybe it well, you know, wasn't this or that. No, he was bodily resurrected and alive and witnessed and appeared to many people over the years. Over, over the days, I mean, like 40 days. And so we have this kind of testimony that Jesus is raised. That's the first thing for Paul. But you remember that Paul just said a minute ago, it's, this is the reason that I keep a clear conscience because God's going to raise the righteous and the unrighteous, right? He believes that fundamentally everyone will be raised to new life. And he says to this king, you ought not be, find it incredible that God could raise the dead. That he has the power of resurrection. Making the case that it's true for Jesus and then fundamentally it's true, listen to me, for all of us and all of them. See, all of a sudden now there's a new context for this conversation. Remember who Paul, little old Paul's talking to? King Agrippa, right? Grandson of Herod, ruler by authority. And he says, we're all going to be raised. You ought not find it incredible that God could raise the dead. It's the first question he asked. I just want to share and ask, uh, uh, just walk this out for a minute. But our culture, um, at its best, uh, celebrates the idea that this life is all there is. I don't mean that's the ultimate best. I mean at the culture's best. All they can really do is say things like, you only live once, you know. You enjoy everything you can while you're here because that's all there is, right? When you're dead and gone, you're dead and gone. Nothing else is going to matter. You're going to look back on your life and say, did I enjoy myself? Fundamentally, we talk about things like deathbed regrets. What did I not do because it's over? My life's over. But I want to say to you, as Paul says to King Agrippa, that's a fundamentally flawed understanding of what the Bible says that God says is true. God says you're on this earth for a time. You have a number of days, and you will be raised to new life, both the wicked and the righteous. That's not just Paul saying that. People say, oh, I don't like Paul. Paul, Paul, oh, Paul, you know, he's so hard to deal with. I like Jesus. That's what Jesus said. There's coming a day you'll be raised, both the righteous and the wicked, for judgment and separation, a discerning, right, a clarity. And we ought to cope with that in some way. And our, our, very, our culture's very best, all they can say is, do all you can do here because that's all you got. And the Bible says, no, everything you do here matters because there's an eternity coming forever. This is not all there is. I, I want to um, unpack that a little bit. There's two sides of this. And that's why it's such a hard conversation, right? Sit down and talk to, my talk to someone about resurrection. That's a hard conversation to have. You know, people, I don't believe in God. Well, you're going to believe when you're raised from the dead. <laughs> I'm not raised from the dead. That ain't going to happen, right? I've not seen any dead people raised yet. Why? Because fundamentally, if this is true, the wicked being raised is not going to be a good experience. The wicked being raised is going to be an oh no moment. <laughs> oh no <laughs> moment. Those who've been denying that God is real, that Christ is the salva salvation, that, that there's the Holy Spirit, that God, listen to me, and you might say, well, that ain't fair because I ain't in. Listen, it, God has been working on your heart. <laughs> That's the thing about it, right? You can pretend with people, but you can't pretend with God. And whenever you're before God's judgment throne and you've been wicked, not me wicked like I'm an evil person. You might be the best person ever, but denying God's reality or denying Jesus Christ, I'm talking about humanitarian goodness, there's going to be nothing. He's, Did you not see what I revealed to you? Did you not want to acknowledge me before your peers? Were you so self-confident in your ability to change the world that you couldn't even acknowledge there's something greater than you? The hubris. Who do you think you are before the righteous God who spoke 
the universe into creation. That's the size of the narrative, folks. And I want you to understand, that's the scale and scope of what the gospel proclaims. It's not this tiny little, oh, I hope we get saved gospel. It's like there's a righteous God who's holy and omnipotent and omnipresent and sovereign, and he is going to raise everyone to judgment. And for wicked, the wicked people, that's bad news. That's why everybody gets really upset about it. But here's the crazy thing about it. For the righteous... Oh, it's good news. Oh, oh, it's good news. And especially if you understand righteousness properly. Because what Paul said is, look, I'm a righteous Pharisee. I, I, you know me since I was a kid. Like, I kept the law my whole life. But Paul's righteousness he's talking about here is not in pharisaical righteousness that I've been able to keep the law rightly. He's like, he's about to tell the reason, the change in his life that came because of the gospel of Jesus Christ that changed everything for Paul. He's not talking about righteousness like, I'm good enough. I'm good. That's the problem we still have in churches. You know, you church people think you're so good. No, we're not. We're not. But the hope we have of resurrection is that, that Jesus Christ has saved us. And it's our hope of resurrection. Listen to me. I want to unpack it for a minute with you. Our hope in resurrection is confirmed every time we look at the world and say, that's not right. It's not right. You see the people in the highest positions of authority, and they're doing things that are not right. And you're like, that's not right. You fundamentally know that's not right. Listen, you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror and you're looking at yourself and you're going, that's not right. You fundamentally know that's not right. <laughs> Righteousness isn't about us getting things. It's about God making things right. I want to say this to you. The hope of resurrection is the hope that there's coming a day whenever everything will be as it should be. And in your spirit, in your soul, the things that you know right now in your own life or in the lives of others or in the world that are so broken will be restored to the glory that God intended them to be. Going, wow! You're going to look around the world and you're going to say, there's no sin in this world. This is crazy. This is how God meant it to be forever. This is what he intended when he created everything. Or, more profoundly maybe, is you're going to look in the mirror, if there's even a mirror, by the way, because there might be mirrors in heaven, I think. <laughs> but you're going to look in the mirror and you're going to go, oh, this is what God made me to be. Maybe more like this. You're going to like, wow, this is what God made me to be. Not full of sin and division and hate and evil, but righteous and holy and pure and glorious for his, his glory. Like, to, I can't get into this. But, it, you know, there's this, like, mountain. It's, like, glorious. And everyone's making a journey toward heaven. They're looking. And God's the light. And we're all basking in it. That's the hope of resurrection. So all of a sudden, when you're standing in this earthly court in front of these earthly judges, you can say, there's a coming hope that's so much greater. See, that's what Paul's saying. There's a coming hope that's so much greater than this place, than this time, than these circumstances. That's the promise of resurrection for those who believe. And they're both true. One is punitive and one is redemptive, right? One is punishment and one's restoration. This is how it should be. And it's for the glory of God. Well, so Paul lays that out. That's, that's why I'm here, because of the hope that I have, right? Let's see where I was at. Yeah, verse 9. I too, now Paul's going to include himself here, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Notice the claim there. Jesus of Nazareth, this man, this dead man, I should oppose him myself. On the authority of the chief priest, I put many of the saints in prison, and when they were then put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I don't think Paul's saying that joyfully there. I think that's just a heartbreaking reality that he was a persecutor of the church and a persecutor of the saints of Jesus Christ. Because he says, look, he says, I put many of the saints in prison and I cast the lot against them to die. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished and I tried to force them to blaspheme against God. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities and persecuted them there. This sounds like the people have been following Paul around, you know. <laughs> little, little turnabouts, fair play. He knows these people. He used to be just like them. In verse 12, and here comes the moment now, church. This is what you need to hear. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun. Just think about that for a minute. Brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions, this overwhelming light that Paul had seen. We all fell to the ground, and I, I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, and some texts might say in Hebrew. That's interesting because at the time, you know, Paul is Saul, and Saul is his Hebrew name. 
which is an interesting thing we might talk about in a minute, saying to me in Hebrew, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. There's a really rough translation of this, but it's like you're trying to kick God and it hurts you. Fighting against God is painful. You feel that pain? That's because you're rejecting me. That's because you're going against me, Paul. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. There's a whole, we can't, we can unpack that. We did it before, but um, there's a thing. There's a great Johnny Cash song that says, uh, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks, you know? And that's the idea of like a thorn bush you're trying to kick in there. I love that song, by the way. Because this reminds you how futile it is that we would reject God, that we would deny his existence. Why are you persecuting me? Verse 15, and then I asked, well, who are you, Lord? And this was the reply, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen of me, and I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by me in faith. You know what that means? And this is beautiful. Jesus is the intervention. Jesus is the intervention. Have you ever seen that show intervention that was on for a while, if it's still on or not, where everybody gets everybody in the room and starts talking about your behavior affects me in the following ways? Jesus is the ultimate intervention here where he calls Paul to account and he says, don't, this isn't about you rejecting, you know, these, this other sect. This isn't about you wanting to be righteous. You're rejecting me. You're rejecting me, Saul. I am the one you're persecuting. And he intervenes in Saul's life in an incredible way. Let me just say this to you. If Jesus Christ had not intervened in the life of Saul, Saul would have gone on persecuting Christians until the end of his days and then faced judgment from God for not recognizing his son. Like, that's the reality, you know what I mean? And lest we forget, Paul's been saying this in the Pharisees. You need to believe in Jesus Christ. He's the promised Messiah. I mean, he's witnessing the same thing to them. So, had he not been, Jesus not intervened on his behalf, he would be damned. If Jesus had not intervened on our behalf, we'd be damned. Why does it take an act of God to save you? I've had people sit with me at the table and say, just tell me how I can be saved. I'm like, you must believe in Jesus Christ. No, the other way. Well, here's the problem, Bill. I can't do that. I know. You need Jesus to do that. You need him to move in your life. But when he moves, don't reject him. When he's moving your heart, say, yes, Jesus. And maybe you go, it's not from here to the Pope, you know, here from the, to the Holy Spirit, whatever. Maybe it's you go from here to there with Jesus. But you're like, you know what, Jesus, I'll trust you this week. I'm going to trust you today. I'm going to trust you tomorrow. I'm going to trust you this week. I'm gonna trust. And then all of a sudden, our faith life that we get like Paul did, man, we get more and more that we live into this place of faith with Jesus that the life that he had planned for us unfolds before us and it's glorious. It's beautiful. I mean, it's what he intends. It's the way he says it here to Paul. It's the things that I've shown you and the things that I will show you. That's what you're going to tell people about, what I've done in your life. Listen, for all the lies of the world that says you're going to miss so much if you're a Christian, what a bunch of baloney. If you're a Christian, you're going to have the most amazing experience of believing in Jesus Christ, and then guess what? A resurrection, a party. Think things are cool here on this earth? Psh, wait. It's going to be so much better. Every good thing that we have in this life is a foretaste of God's blessing in heaven. Every, even things that are corrupted by sin that we experience, we go, oh, isn't that great to be this way? It's a corruption of the fundamental goodness of God, and heaven will be like that. I've had some conversations with my brother-in-law, who I love dearly, about the glory and the reality of heaven, and we've kind of explored that idea. What are the most pleasurable things on earth? Can you imagine that in heaven? Can you imagine it without sin? Jesus intervenes to save us. And he intervened here to save, save Saul. So he, he says a few things, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I, I, want, I want to at least acknowledge it. He says, I'm going to appoint you as a servant and a witness. And I think that's the way that Jesus intervenes in our life, as a servant and a witness. There's something that happens fundamentally when we begin to believe in Jesus Christ. We go, oh, wait, the world isn't all about me. There's a God who made everything, and I should find a way to serve, right? Not for my salvation. No, 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 no. You cannot serve enough to be saved. But because you've been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, we ought to serve. 
right? We ought to go, yeah, sign me up. Yeah, I'll help. Yeah, I'll do that. Because we're eager to give back, to give thanks for the great and glorious things that Jesus has done in my life. You know, I've seen this reality that many times the people that you see serving the most, you're like, wow, I, I like that person. And then you'll find out, oh, they're believing in Jesus Christ. Not always, but often. Some of my favorite people, I'm like, wow, I didn't know you were a Christian. But they've been serving and, and giving in that way. And the second thing is to be a witness. Just to testify about what you saw. You know, you get called on a stand to be a witness. This is what God did. People say, well, you're so self-righteous. No, I'm not. I'm not. I didn't figure this out. God intervened. God saved me. Listen, the hope is not for us, but for everyone. God can save you. That's what we proclaim as witnesses. And that's what Paul does. So he says, I'm going to appoint you as a servant and a, and a witness of what you've seen and heard. Verse 17, I will rescue you from your own people and the Gentiles. So he says, you're going to be in peril, but I'm going to save you from that, right? And I'm sending you to them, who? The Gentiles and your own people. Don't miss that. He's not just sending them to the Gentiles only, but to the Gentiles and their own people. Why? Here's the, here's, I'm going to break it down. Here it is. To open their eyes. That's the first reason. To say, don't you see there's a God who made everything, right? Don't you see that the world is broken and sinful and not right? Don't you see there's something greater happening? To open their eyes to the reality. Second thing, to turn them from darkness to light. He's making a claim here that everyone who doesn't know about me is in darkness, including Saul in the moment. But we're going to turn them by our witness and our service from darkness into light, right? Kind of has something to do with like, being able to see. And listen, this is crazy. From the power of Satan to the power of God, and you might go, People who don't believe in Jesus aren't in the power of Satan. And the Bible goes, yes, they are. Yes, they are. Well, who's this Satan? The enemy of God. The one going the opposite direction. The one who's deceiving and lying. And he says that your testimony, your service, your witness will turn them, and that's crazy to read, from the power of Satan to the power of God. There's a heartbreaking thing that's going to come up at the end here. And then lastly, so that, in order that, they may receive forgiveness of sins, right? Oh, the forgiveness of sins. And listen, and a place among those who are sanctified, that means holy, in faith, by faith, in me. So you get from darkness to light, the power of Satan to the power of God, and then you get forgiveness of your sins and a place among those who are being made holy. And the way you say that is being made righteous by faith in Jesus. That's going to be what you're going to do for folks. Now, awesome. So Jesus is the inter intervention. Look at what Paul does in 19. So then, who? Festus? So then, all of you in this room who are listening to my testimony today? No. What does the word say? 19. So then, King Agrippa. He, he looks right at King Agrippa. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. And that's our next point here, is that we ought to be obedient to the vision from heaven. This is what I pray for for our church family. This is what I pray for in my own life. This is what I pray for for my children, that we would be obedient to the vision from heaven. Um, this uh, uh, idea is like the things, this a spiritual seeing, not a worldly seeing. God, help us not to see this as the world sees it. Help us to see this as you see it. Uh, seeing other people, not as the world sees them, but the way God sees them. God, help me to see this person not as I have a tendency to see them, but as you see them. Help me to have a, a vision from heaven. Listen to me. We talked about resurrection, right? God, give me a vision for your people when they're in glory forever. Give me that kind of understanding. Help me to see it. The word says that it's a divine inspiration, this vision from heaven. It's not a worldly thing. It's not like, hey, just be nice to people. It's like, God, help me. This is the way I think you could see it in a nutshell. Help me to see the way you see. And I'll be obedient to it. That's what Paul says. King Agrippa, I was not disobedient. I obeyed the vision from heaven. That's all I've done. Why can he say? You remember he said when he first showed up, I have done nothing wrong before God until this very day because he's been obedient to the vision from heaven. I want to mention something to you. 
this is like one of those things that we ought to always be seeking. God, what are you doing? I said this to you before, right? But in your own life, something's going haywire. Instead of just getting caught up in the panic, like, oh, we're freaking out, like the world freaks out, everybody's freaking out, to stand back and, and, and prayer, which is a conversation with God, say, God, what are you doing right now with this? Or what are you doing with me in this situation? Why am I here? And maybe, it, maybe it's for a very specific purpose, but we won't discern it unless we even ask the question. Why am I here? I've had some friends that have had great tragic loss in their life, and they just sit in tragic loss. Instead of saying, well, God, why am I in this loss right now? What, what is it, you know, what are, what are your purposes in it? Which is a fundamentally different question than we often ask, which is like, why me? So here we have this opportunity to be, um, to be obedient. And, and Paul says, I was obedient to the vision. Um, this is, by the way, one of the things as a church family, and I, I talk to brothers and sisters who are pastoring in other churches in the community, and I've said this to you before, and I mean it with all my heart, like, I love all, all the churches, and I love the way they're serving. I pray it's gospel-centric, right? I do pray that. But I go, God, give us a vision for what you're doing in the community, not just in our little boxes and our little responsibilities and our little roles, but in the great big community and in the great big world. Give us a vision. They have the Fickers coming in, right? Give us a vision for what you're doing in Kenya. Give us a vision for what you're doing in, in Kenya with Marissa. Give us a vision for what you're doing in the world. Like, help us to have some kind of divine inspiration that we can understand more fully. And even to something as practical as this building, God, if, if you want us to have this building, give us a vision for this building is supposed to be for your glory. Not an earthly view of, yeah, we want this and that. But like, what do you want to do with the space? What is your intended purposes for it? That God would give us a vision. Or in our own lives, give me a vision for how my work connects to the gospel. Give me a vision for how I can use the daily operations in my family or in the community to somehow bring glory to you. And not in a weird, pushy way, but in an authentic, God-honoring way. God, would you give us a vision? I mean, oh, listen, <laughs> Oh, that we would have a heavenly vision of our life. You ever heard that saying? They said, some Christians are so heaven-bound and no earthly good. I think Christians love to pick on ourselves. But I tell you what, man. I think if I could sit back every morning and look at the glory to be revealed through Jesus Christ, if I could get a taste of heaven that's coming, boy, I'd get out of bed and do stuff. You know what I mean? If you could just get a vision for your life, for your eternal life in Jesus Christ, how much would your life be shaped by the vision have you ever met someone who has had a vision from God? They can't be stopped, you know. They're like, it has to happen. It's not an option. We got to do it. And then God makes it happen. And what do they do? They say, look what I did. They say, no. They say, wow, God is so cool. Look at what God did. We ought to have a vision. Oh, how our lives would be transformed if we had a heavenly vision for what God is calling us to do. Oh, come on. Verse 20. We're going to wrap here. First to those in Damascus, he's talking about who he testified to. Then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea and to the Gentiles also. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. There's the action that Paul talks about. James, people say, why is James different than Paul? It's not different. There he says it right there. Prove our repentance by our actions. But we repent of our sin and we're forgiven. And then we prove it by how we live our lives after that we're forgiven, not that we're uh, holy. Verse 21, that is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I have had God's help. There it is, Paul testifying to this very day. And so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. Man, I love his attitude here. To small and great. I'll tell people who have nothing, and I'll tell people who have everything about Jesus Christ. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That Christ that's the Messiah, would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead, that he would, that we would proclaim uh, light to his own people and to the Gentiles. So there's the Jews and the Gentiles, the gospel revelation that Jesus is raised and so will you be. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you nuts. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> I mean, come on, can we just get a minute to say Paul's crazy in front of the ruler? Come on. You're crazy. Why? Nobody acts like this in the court. This is what he says. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king, that's Agrippa, is familiar with all these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it has not been done in a corner. Listen, 
God ain't keeping secrets from you. Don't play that game. God ain't keeping secrets from you. Look around. You know what's happening. You see it. You taste it. You smell it. You feel it. God ain't doing this in a corner. And then he says this. Verse 27. So he's talking to Festus. Then he turns and he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. What? Do you believe what the prophets said about the Messiah? I know you do. Listen to Agrippa's response. King Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? <laughs> He's kind of incredulous. Do you think this like five-minute speech is going to convert me to believing in Jesus Christ and resurrection? Verse 29, and Paul replied, short time or long, I pray God that not only will you but all who are listening to me may become what I am except for these chains. What is Paul? He's a changed man. What is Paul? He's converted. What is Paul? Not counting his own righteousness. Not counting his own authority. Not counting his position on the court, right? I am being sanctified. I'm being saved. He says, I pray that you are. And here's the way I said that for our notes. We pray for Christians. Now, I don't mean we pray for Christians like God help the Christians. We ought to pray for Christians. But I'm saying we pray that people become believers in Jesus Christ. That's our hope. I was talking to a fellow pastor in the community, and we're talking about all the churches, and it's like, it's like, man, you know, this church is that, and that church is that. And I'm like, listen, brothers, we're all on the same team. We ought to want people to become Christians. Like, we ought not be worried about, you know, is this person not going to your church or my church? Wherever. Listen, if they heard the gospel, did they believe the gospel? Then get to work. Like, let's reach the community with faith. Let's, let's move together. Let's somehow be a witness or a light shining in darkness that we're on the same page, that the gospel is salvation for all people. We pray for Christians. Christians. God, would you make more Christians? Would you cause people to believe? Would you save us from sin? Maybe you're here today and you're like, I don't even, I don't even believe. Maybe it's you. Why are you kicking against the goads? There's coming a day of resurrection. Paul fully expected in the moment that a cripple could say, yes, Paul, I believe. Whoa, wait a minute. The grandson of Herod the Great? The baby killer? The son of the one that killed James, put Peter in prison? The one that can throw me in jail right now or put me to death? Yeah. Yeah, King Agrippa. He can save you. You believe it, don't you? The fundamental question is that. You believe it, don't you? The king rose and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. They left the room and while talking with one another they said, this man's not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Look, no effect. That's fun. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free had he not appealed to Caesar. Could have been free. No, not Paul. Work to do. Someone to preach to. Someone to share with. The final question today. You believe the prophets, don't you? I know that you do. I know that you do. So we ought to live like it. We ought to believe like it. I'm going to ask you to pray with me as we always do. Pray that God would do miraculous things, church. Listen to me. You can't do it on your own. You can't do Christian life on your own. It ain't because you needed Jesus and then you said a prayer and now you're saved. You don't have to worry about Jesus no more. You need Jesus every day of your life. I don't know. I need Jesus every day of my life, right? Church family, we need Jesus in our lives. The community, we need Jesus in the community. Churches, elder churches, we need Jesus in elder churches. We need to encourage one another to proclaim the gospel, not forget the gospel. You have brothers and sisters who are in other churches, don't believe the gospel. Share the gospel again. This is what we're here for. Pray with me if you would. Father God, that you would do a mighty work amongst your people, that you would quicken our hearts toward the gospel and quicken us toward salvation in Jesus' name. Father God, that we would have a fundamental belief. And I, I know in this day and age, and listen to us, like we've changed so much in 2,000 years, God, your people, that uh, there's this battle for our hearts. How can resurrection be true? How can Jesus be alive? Maybe even there's brothers and sisters here today who believed in you, believed in salvation, but then find the doubt coming. If Jesus is alive, why is this happening? Father God, I, I, I ask you to do a miraculous and bold thing. Would you speak into that in our lives? Would you speak into those dark recesses that we're afraid we think we can hide away from you and do, you know, have our own little corner that you don't know about? Would you move in our lives, Father God? 
And I'm going to ask, Father, boldly that, that you would bring those whom you're calling to salvation. And maybe there's somebody here today that's been resisting, waiting, thinking, not me, I'm too bad. But we heard about a grandson of a murderer, you know. And, and, and yeah, absolutely, you too can be included. Father, would you help us to believe that today? Even if it's just an inch towards you, Jesus, would you move us that inch? Because we can't move that inch. Would you move us toward the gospel a little bit? A little bit for your glory, for our good. We want to meet you face to face in judgment and resurrection power and in glory, not in condemnation and wickedness. Would you help us in our righteousness by your power? We love you so much. We trust you to do the work that only you can do. And whether that's this morning in this place with someone right now that you're doing the work or this week as we go out, that you would continue to bring the gospel to the nations. May we help you. May we work with you in that effort. May you be glorified. We love you so much. And we look forward to resurrection in Jesus' name. Amen.